Hi, and welcome to the Leadership Tales podcast. I'm Colin Hunter, your host. Just ended a very exciting sixth season of the Leadership Tales podcast, and I'm preparing to take a bit of a small break um, until 2024. But before we do, just wanted to highlight some of the remarkable moments of Series 6 with advice and personal stories from Trevor Wilcox, Tim Carroll, Morgan J. Ingram, Liz Sandworth, Dan Lappin, and Charlene Lee. So in these clips, you'll hear as they share their personal perspectives on leadership and how they've seen and practiced in their own careers, some real insights. You'll also hear some, some moments that can help you on your own leadership journey. So let's dive in. First up, we have Charlene Lee, a brilliant analyst, researcher and author known for her work in digital transformation and disruption, as well as the author of The Disruption Mindset, a book which helps leaders develop a strategy for disruptive growth. In this clip, you'll hear the story about how Charlene asks uh, to ponder a simple question that could have a powerful impact on your mindset and how you approach the concept of success. It's never about being perfect. It's about doing your best. And the hardest part is knowing what best means. So what is your best? Yeah. You can always do more, but that's not your best. So that was that was the most difficult thing to, to figure out is how would you define success and your own definition of success, nobody else's definition of success. Mm. Because if you'd end each day with the feeling that you have accomplished what you set out to do, that you have done your best, then it's a really, really good day. So I, I believe in being optimistic, but being realistic. Uh, so the realist optimists are the ones who rule the world because you believe that things can be better. And that's what leaders do. They create change to make the world around them better. Uh, and then you set about to say what can realistically be done. I have always said that my greatest source of inspiration are the people I talk to and work with. My clients, the people I meet at conferences, I learn through their questions. I learn through their challenges. Mm. Uh, as I, I'm, I'm writing a book now on chat GPT and generative AI and how companies can use it. And people are like, isn't it changing way too fast for you to write a book? Well, there are ways to write books that you can update them whenever you want. It's called print on demand. That didn't mm. exist a few years ago. And so the idea that I, I can use these technologies and dive into them very quickly and easily means that I can actually explain it to people too as well. It creates this credibility because when people ask me these questions, I'm like, well, that's a great question. I don't know what the answer is. Let me go think about it, do some research, I'll get back to you. Because we're all learning this together. And I'm, I'm fascinated by the amount of change that's happening. We, we thought that digital and social were challenges to us as leaders. I think this new wave of generative AI is going to bring a whole new level that's going to challenge our leadership and our ability to comprehend the huge amount of change that has to happen in our organizations. I like to say that there are three questions that every single one of your employees in a company should be able to answer. And if you're lower in the organization and you cannot answer these questions, then your leaders owe it to you to be able to support you in answering these three questions. So the first one is, who is our customer of the future? Who are we trying to serve? How is the world evolving? How is the market evolving? What are the needs of those customers? Mm -hmm. And second question is, what's our strategy to be able to meet those needs? What are we doing today to not just serve our current customers, but to also prepare to serve those future customers? And the third question is, what is my role, my impact, I'm making that strategy to serve our future customers a success. 
And as an employee, I should be able to answer all of those. And it's not rocket science. You know, we can have these large, you know, decks of presentations about what the strategy is and beautiful placemats and everything. But if you can't explain it and, and answer those three questions for every single employee, then the strategy is worthless. Hmm. What are we doing? Why are we here? Am I doing a job? Am I supporting a strategy? Two very different approaches. And so the budget is all in support of that strategy to make that a reality. If you've ever felt overwhelmed or struggled to cope with burnout, this episode and this clip might be a moment where you reflect and start to, to resonate with Trevor Wilcox. Trevor shares the story of how he reached a breaking point in his career and the steps he took to prioritize his mental health. You'll hear how he realized he needed to treat his mental health in this clip. A good clip. So as I went through my journey, I took a week holiday off and, and we went to somewhere we'd been many times when normally I would relax quite quickly and, and I still wasn't relaxing. I was still head up. And I, I was due to come back to work on the Monday and, and I just I just couldn't do it. I, I, I'd had some advice from colleagues that said, look, if you, if you feel you can't come back, don't come back. So I, I decided to take, the, take an extra week off. And throughout this, this process, I, for many, many weeks, kept on thinking, this, I'm not ill. I'm a fraud. There's nothing wrong with me. I was going out for very long walks. I was still socialising a bit. I was around the house. I my daughter. I'm like, this. I should be at work. I should be at work doing things. And then I, I spoke to a GP, and they, I was like, look, I just need to. I've just been reading a lot. I've been sleeping a lot. I was sleeping during the day. I was just constantly still tired, and that was one of the symptoms. Actually, just the constant tiredness. Actually, constantly still tired, and 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 I said, look. I just need a couple more weeks. I just need a little bit more sleep. She went, no, no. She went, I've signed you off for two weeks, but you need longer than this. I was like, no, 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 I don't. And it took me about seven weeks where actually I finally came to the conclusion, do you know what? I'm, 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 I am broken. If this was a broken leg, it would be really obvious. I'd be in a cast. I'd have a plan now of how to get it better. And I'd be going step by step. But actually it took me such a long time to suddenly realize this isn't right. And and I'd spoken to a lot of people about the fact that I fell, fell off that cliff edge. But actually, I fell off the cliff edge and I was lucky that I, I fell two or three meters. So I could see that I could see it above me. And I just went, Do you know what, I just need to relax for a little bit. And then I can climb back out. But actually, I needed to go down a level before I could climb back. And, and that's where I got to over the period of the, the October, the November and into December was realizing that, yeah, this is not normal. I'm not in a good place. I'm still tired. I'm still emotionally drained. I'm still not able to, to really function. And every time I went to go back to work, it was, I'm just going to get loads of escalations and I'm just not ready for that. I'm just not ready. I can come in and do stuff, but I'm just not ready to do it. And, and actually, that was the key for me, realizing how badly I got. Because otherwise it was just a, hey, this is, I'm a fraud. This is, this is, I'm not that bad. I should be at work. I should be doing these things. I should be helping the team do it. And, and, and actually that guilt took me a long time to, to get over of, it was almost like weeks before I suddenly thought, do you know what? I've not been there for a while. The team are doing what they need to do by now. If I've not been there for four weeks, they've moved on. They're fine. They'll, they'll be doing what they have to. But I felt really guilty about not being there, really guilty about not working, really guilty about not earning my salary. But as I say, it took me a long time to realize 
yeah. And I started reading lots and started reading lots of books. And Positive Intelligence, one of the ones that, that is very much, I think, recommended by yourself, was, was one that I picked up and I read through um, and started to, to learn about myself more and more and more, thinking about actually what, what, what are the drivers behind it. And I went through therapy with a, with a, a mm-hmm. professional. They took me all the way back, Colin, all the way back to my childhood, things that I had never considered but it came out. I said, oh, by the way, yeah, my best friend, when I was five, moved to, to um, 200 miles away, never saw them again. I hadn't even considered to that point. So they really stripped me back, right the way back to lots of things I just had never considered about me, my family, my working practices. And I say, was one of the reasons that failure came out, that my fear of failure, my fear of actually not being able to do what I say I would do the imposter syndrome bit. I'm I'm in a role that I'm not supposed to be an expert in, that I'm supposed to be doing. Actually, do you know what? I don't always know what I'm talking about. And actually, everyone else does. Mm. Those things that were really coming out to, to really then mean I could start building myself back again was, was, a, was a powerful bit for me to suddenly go, do you know what? It's okay not to be okay. I was excited this season to sit down with Morgan J. Ingram, who's a top voice in LinkedIn, an expert in content sales and marketing, and still has a connection since we recorded, shared a number of things he's doing, which are amazing. But Morgan was kind enough to share his expertise on how to effectively communicate and present oneself in the sales process, as well as provided valuable insights and tips on how to improve your content process. Here, Morgan shares how out-of-the-box thinking accelerated his career path early on. There was a lot of there's a lot of sales trainers, right? Yeah. Uh, so I was like, okay, I can't just say like I help you sell. That's or I help mm. you get top of the funnel. That's not what it was. I had to look. So when you think about a narrative, you have to think about like what are we uniquely positioned to do mm. that, or myself to do that other people cannot do. So what I did is I was like, all right, I'm training people on how to prospect. I've I've done that before, right? Mm. I know how to do that. Right. So I was like, all right, what did I do differently to be successful than everyone else while I was prospecting? Right. You can ask, what was I, what was I personally doing? And I was like, well, I was doing things out of the box to break the noise. I was doing like videos. I was doing like GIFs or GIFs or whatever you want to call them nowadays. Right. I was doing like images and, and emails. I was doing different cold calling intros that no one was doing. And I was like, all right, well, how I, how I need to position myself is I'm going to teach your team how to do out of the box strategies and really good, good at like sales navigator and things that people aren't talking about. Like, oh, because I don't have the 20, 30 years sales experience. Like this is, this is the crazy part. I had only been two years in sales and I got asked to go do sales training for a big company. Yeah. Those are right? so, teach. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so it's like, okay, like, who, what are you going to teach us? Like you've only yeah. been in for like two years. So I had to think about how can it be so innovative? That is something that people haven't thought of. And that was my unique advantage going into these organizations, I was doing things that like no one had thought of before because that was the only advantage I really had. I didn't have the, hey, I've been around for a long time and I have these massive stories. I just know that the things that I'm gonna tell you are just so different that they will get you responses. So my narrative was just like helping you break through the noise. And that's how I sold it and that's how I approached it. And that's how I got invited things where people were like, how can I break through the noise? How can I be innovative? How can I be different? And that's always my mantra is like, be different. And so, that was my whole entire thing when it came to the sales lens. Now, mm. that's me. That's what I. That's what I leaned on. Innovative prospecting, break through the noise. That's what 
I was known for, still known for to a certain degree, that was the focus. Now, when I, when I talked to different clients, prospects, or whoever, they, whoever I was training, I told them, what makes you different than your competitors? Now, it's the mm-hmm. use, it's the store, it's the case studies, right, mm-hmm. that you have from your customers. That's what's going to make you uniquely different. But also, like, what actually makes you different? And so, if you, this is a good example of people listening in, if you've used video products before, I'll give you like three products and how they're different, but they do the same thing. So a video product, essentially you can make a video, you can send it to someone and then they can watch it, right? So the three products I'm going to mention are Vidyard, Loom, and let's do Wistia. So Mm -hmm. Loom, which I use quite frequently, their whole narrative is doing videos to save you from being in meetings. Mm -hmm. That's their whole entire thing. It has nothing really to do. I mean, I've talked to them. They have nothing. They don't really care as much about the prospecting or the selling solutions Mm. they actually care more about like you're a founder startup you're 19 you're in customer success can you just do a quick recap of something so i don't have to hop on a zoom call with you Mm -hmm. so they're all about efficiency and saving time you think of like vidyard they're all about like prospecting SDR sales reps, you need to go get top of the funnel. Here's a creative way to reach out, which is, you know, in my beginning days, that's what I used because that was mm. what their narrative was, right? It was the best solution for that. Then Wistia is another video product, but they're actually more focused on like marketing. So are you going to house your like marketing assets, your webinars and things of nature inside of Wistia? Now, you could all mm. use them for selling and for prospecting, but Vidyard was more positioned for that as well. And even there's new products like Vouch, uh, et cetera, kind of bonus to this is they're focusing on the full customer journey. So they're focusing on prospecting, selling, and also customer success. So my point is, is that every company can have a different narrative, even if they still have the same product. And my belief is that it's becoming more of the same product. You launch something and three to four months later, like people can get the funding, get the money, and then have the same features as you. So you're not like, oh, yeah. we're completely different. It's just how you position yourself and what your messaging is. You can even say the same for coca-cola and pepsi right i'm biased because i'm in atlanta and obviously i'm going to say coca-cola but the thing is Mm. their messaging and pepsi's messaging are so drastically different but pepsi and coke are essentially the same identical product serumis and sprite are the same identical product so that's just how i think about it it was wonderful to interview liz samworth uh, an expert in internal order who brings a unique perspective both from her extensive experience in internal order across multiple industries and from her upbringing in a service family, which exposed her to various cultures and locations around the world. Whether you're in finance, internal order, or risk compliance, this conversation is packed with valuable takeaways, including this next clip where Liz shares lessons she learned from working with school tra- children. Let's take a listen. Just because you're not good at one thing doesn't mean that you don't have a raft of different skills. So in my school, I get on really well with the children. Mm. They love talking to me. Um, and they have a, a school parliament and I, and I go and I listen to them. And, you know, they, they're, they're brilliant at saying, so what do you do? Mm. Um, they're not, they don't go, Oh my goodness. That's the chair of our governors. We have to be on our best behavior. They just go, I'm going to ask a question. Who are you? What do yes. you do? <laughs> Why are you here? <laughs> Love it. There's no side to them. And I, the other thing I noticed, and again, I think this is is time passing. So I wear glasses, you wear glasses. When I was a child at school, you used to get the the the, the teasing about being, you know, four eyes, specky yeah. four eyes, all that sort of very cruel stuff with children. 
But what I have noticed is how tolerant they are of each other. Uh, I mean, in, in one of the uh, school parliaments that I attended, and it's a group of about 15 children representing years, there was a, a young girl and she had a soft toy because she needed that, that comfort. It was important to her. It helped her. It was an anchor. And she had it out on the table and she was just stroking it and touching it. Nobody said a word. Yeah. And I just thought, wind the clock back to the mid-50s and I wouldn't have even dared to have that at school mm. because of how you would have been mocked. There would yeah. have been no tolerance for that at all. So, mm. so I think we're seeing a, a, a future generation, and I hope they keep the tolerance and respect for each other that I'm seeing in, in this school. And I know it's not the same everywhere, but mm. I am seeing it. It inspires me to think about my world and internal audit and you know, what we do, and are we, as internal auditors, tolerant of each other? Do we identify our strengths, and do we do we embrace those strengths and support them? So we've been talking a lot about ESG and internal audit, environmental, social, and governance. And one of the things some internal auditors will say, not what we do, not what I'm about. Um, and what I've been saying is there might be somebody in your internal audit team who actually has a passion about the climate agenda. If they have, forget whether they're a newbie or a manager or a deputy head of internal audit, CAE, encourage that, give them some skills to be more knowledgeable about that, and they can be your subject matter expert on that topic. Love it. Because they love it and it matters to them. Don't put them doing data analytics, which probably they'll do a bit like me and my maths. They'll go, hmm, I've got to do it, but I'm not really sure why. I always enjoy when I'm able to interview a friend or all-round good person, and Dan Lappin is that. So pleasure to have this clip on here. He's founder of Lappin 180 and a leading voice in disrupting traditional sales techniques and adopting a high-performance mindset. Dan and I have had similar experiences professionally speaking. It's been great to connect with them as members of a peer mentor group as well. In this clip, Dan shares the shortcomings of traditional sales approaches and how his methodology can help professionals serve others, not themselves. Sales doesn't have to be something where we sacrifice who we are. All right. And selling is helping somebody get to their truth. So, right. I mean, I understand that traditional sales is, Hey, what's our value proposition? What questions are we going to prioritize? Yep. When we find their pain, we need to make sure we understand it and we have the right resources in place to solve it. Right. I understand that side of sales and for possibly the one or two companies or individuals out there that have already decided that they need to improve or make a change, that approach can work. So like in our, in our, some of our research, Colin, and I don't know if we've talked about this, 
we've asked thousands of individuals, how many prospects have decided to make a change before you ever show up for that first conversation? Hmm. And the answer we get back 90% of the time is one or two. Yeah. And so when I talk about traditional sales, yes, you can build that value proposition. You can build your slides, your presentation, find the pain, all that. And you'll, you'll get away with it for the one or two who've already decided, hey, I need to do something different. The challenge is, what about the other eight that you mm -hmm. work so hard to get in front of that don't know if they need to make a change, aren't even thinking about change, but objectively, if they did consider it and they were going to be honest with themselves, they probably need to make a change. And that's where a lot of what we teach helps, right? Mm -hmm. It's helping another human being get to their truth, not helping ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Advance what we want or to make the sale. I often will tell people it's about, it's not about being right. It's about getting it right. If I go back to the experience that I had in corporate America, and I go back to my life in general, um, I was a very attached dude. Hmm. <laughs> what, what that means is I was attached to every outcome that I had in my head possible, right? Yeah. You know, I was so attached. I wanted to control every outcome. Hey, I want to become a VP. Very attached to that. Hey, I want this person to buy this. Very attached to that. And what I found through attachment is that when we're attached, all we do is struggle. Because we're trying to control something we can't control. And when we're attached, which means I hope that person likes me, right? Or yeah. I hope that person agrees to a second meeting. Or I hope that person wants to see my demo. How do we get them to do that, right? We are attached to the outcome. And when we do get attached to an outcome, we start listening for things that are only aligned with the outcome that we want. And we start only asking questions that are aligned with the outcome that we want. And all of our biases kick in based on the outcome that we want. So in essence, right, here's the funny part. We lose all objectivity. Mm -hmm. And what do you think one of the biggest trust factors are between two human beings? It's objectivity. Yeah. Yeah. Or as Meister calls it, self-orientation, I sense is what you're talking about, is whether the agenda is yours or theirs or mutual or whatever else it is. Yeah. 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 Mm. I mean, that's it, exactly it. You know, if I, if I show up in a cup of coffee with you and I'm asking you questions to find your pain, right? I'm asking you questions to help me validate myself or to show you how smart I am. As I'm asking those questions, could you tell I'm trying to get you somewhere? Mm -hmm. Yep. And the yep. second you can tell I'm trying to get you somewhere, what happens to your answers? They come hooded, cloaked, yeah, unless open, transparent, yeah. yeah. And then what happens to the trust between us? Yeah, I always then go directly to price. So give me the price to tell me whether it's worth me going on with this conversation. Yeah, that's my yeah. Scottish blood in me, though, I think. coming in. <laughs> uh, yeah, but here's, yeah. here's the funny thing, too, though. It's the same in leadership. Mm. As a leader, 
I was horrible because I, I would get attached to wanting the other person that I was mentoring or managing or coaching or I would get attached to what I felt that they needed to do. I would get attached to their success. I would get attached to how I wanted them to respond. It was never out of ill intent. In fact, it was out of good intent. But my issues were that I was not listening. I was not allowing others to work their own way through the problem. And it just made me a, it just made me a very poor leader. When Chris Tufthers did the podcast in Series 5, he shared with me the story of how he met Tim Carroll at the speaking event and how they got off to a rocky start but ended up forming a strong connection with one another. I was so fascinated by the story of the, the guy who wanted to punch uh, Chris in the face that I had to have Tim on the podcast to hear his side of the story. Tim has a fascinating background in environmental science and sustainability, so make sure you listen to his full episode as well. I'm going to introduce you to the world, but um, I'd love you to tell us a bit about yourself. But I think we should start with how the hell we met, because it's quite a story. Yeah. You want and, to tell the audience how we met? Yeah. A, a thousand percent. Because I, if I could get away without having to talk about myself, I'd be completely fine with that. <laughs> so to talk about it in the third person of the guy who wanted to punch him in the face, I'll take it. Then we can jump into the other stuff. <laughs> so go on. Tell me. Tell us the story. Tim Carroll, to give you a full name. So it sounds like you're at school. Tim Carroll, tell me how we met. <laughs> uh, if you had said Timothy John Carroll, I would be having flashbacks <laughs> to my mother, eyes ablaze of whatever it is that I had done. So Tim Carroll will work. Yeah. Um, but um, so, the, so yes, uh, you and I met because Chris had described to you, Chris Tuff, mm. who wrote Save Your Asks, had described to you the person – uh, that when he was speaking, wanted to punch him in the face mm -hmm. and chose it was impactful enough, no pun intended, that he wanted to, that he wrote a chapter about it in his book. Um, and so I just have to say for the record, and especially because my kids will see this at some point, I would not have actually punched him in the face. But I do know the looks I get on my face, and there's a chance that he was completely justified in thinking that I did want to. Right. So I just we, we have to get out in front of that. Put it out um, there. So, okay. so the context, he's speaking yes. to yes. an audience. Yes. You're sat. How many rows back? Front row? Well, so the channel. Well, because I took my customary seat, which was back right corner. Right. The um, and That's so even more and, impressive. And, yeah. <laughs> well, right, exactly. I must have had their spot shadow or something. But <laughs> but so this is I mean, as you can see, I'm a sort of middle-of-the-road corporate America looking as you get, right? I just went to the frameless and glasses, For right? those who are listening and can't see this, he's a lovely-looking guy <laughs> who just doesn't look like Chris or wants right. to punch Chris. And so I'm, I'm – right. And so then here's Chris up on stage, and Chris has the neon yellow glasses, and he's got the Air Jordans, and he's got the leather jacket, and he's got the whole thing. And so right in, he's the antithesis of, of me – um, and he was talking about a number of topics and, and many of them revolved around these connections that he had to these bigger than life, fabulous people. Mm. And I am somebody that I'm just not comfortable with fabulous, right? It's not my MO. Mm. Um, and so I have of course done what is my go-to reaction, which is to prejudge mm -hmm. and predetermine, uh, what it was, but there has always been a part of me in the back that is an active listener 
that like if somebody's got the guts to get up there in front of a room full of people and start talking, I might as well listen. And so I was sitting with my listening face, which sometimes can be confused with my punch somebody in the face face. <laughs> and so he, what he thought was utter disdain was actually that I was pre-focused on what he was saying because what he was getting to was this message of authenticity, yeah. was this message of, of reaching out to people in order to um, reach out to other people. You've got to make yourself vulnerable to a certain extent, but at the same time, you don't need to just go blather and throw up on the table in front of people, right? Yeah. And so Chris has done a remarkable job of building this network of incredibly diverse people from across the spectrum, socioeconomic, I mean, you name it, it's across mm -hmm. the board, but because all of it comes from this genuine curiosity that he has about what makes other people tick. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I quickly realized that he and I were much more alike than we were different. Yeah. Um, and to his credit, he made a beeline for me after that, talk and and just flat out said you know what you've looked like you wanted to punch me in the face <laughs> and uh the whole thing and so then i answered well i kind of did <laughs> just because i wanted to see his reaction um and that was four years ago and we've talked every week for four years that is um, an amazing story and have become uh very close and uh and he's you know on the cusp of millennial and Gen Z, and I was on the cusp of Boomer, and it's just been this fascinating journey of finding mm. out how two people who in so many ways you could think of as very different shared so many similar values, right? And then we said, okay, how do we communicate this to other people? How do we apply it? And I work for a large tech company. He's a solo entrepreneur, but we would just keep lobbing ideas back and forth of how do we apply these principles to these individual. And so it's just been great. It's been a it's been a, a whole new journey for me that I wasn't expecting. That's it, folks, for the best of series six of the Leadership Tales podcast. Hope you enjoyed listening to this episode and this series as a whole. And we'll see you again in 2024.